So this morning we're going to examine some of what we might call the problem texts, although they're not really a problem, are they? It's the Lord's revelation. So problem texts in the sense that those that are uh, not in agreement when it comes to limited atonement, particular redemption, the text they may point to to argue against these doctrines. So, obviously, as I know you've all been paying attention, as we've been going through this series, we've been talking about doctrine. And what exactly is doctrine? That's a basic question, but I think it's a, this is a good time to examine that um, short, you know, in, in a very short fashion. Doctrine, by definition, is truth derived from Scripture. It is not truth established by human thinking or human reasoning. It's, it's divine revelation which is above human reasoning. So as such, where do we get our doctrine from? Well, it flows from what I just said that we get doctrine from the Bible, from God's revelation. Doctrine is not something that we concoct. It is not something that is how we wish things to be. So limited atonement, particular redemption, as well as the other doctrines of grace that we've looked at and that we will be looking at, are things that we find grounded in God's revealed word. And which Christians over the centuries, studying God's word, have determined that these things are found in it, and so establish these doctrines, which we call the doctrines of grace. So we're going to look at a number of texts this morning, which some people believe, and they, they sincerely believe this, that, that they, these these passages teach something other than the limited atonement. They teach that Jesus died for everyone, basically. So here's the thing that, we, that I, I want us to um, consciously think about, just for a moment, is that if that were true, if that's what was truly found in the scriptures, then we would change our doctrine because our doctrine must be in alignment with God's word. It's not that we decided we want it this way, that some, some reformed clergyman centuries and centuries ago decided, you know, this is what I, the way I think it should be. And if you look at, Christ, at church history, you go back to the earlier church fathers particularly, you find that these men struggled with what they found in God's word because that is not how the way they wanted it. They wanted everybody to be saved, some of them, and realized that, that, that as, as merciful as they felt that would be, that's simply not what is found in Scripture, and that God had good reason that he laid forth in Scripture as to why that was not to be. So it's not hard-heartedness on the part of Christians of, that, 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 that follow Reformed theology 
It's not hard-heartedness that causes us to follow this, this doctrine. So our doctrine cannot and should not be our personal view of what we think Scripture should say or what we want it to say. <clears throat> this is contrary in a very real sense to what the Roman Catholic Church teaches and what they label as dogma, which is how the church takes God's word and how the church makes it into what they think it should say. Now, interestingly, in Reformed theology, we have dogma also. Our dogma is very close, almost synonymous with doctrine. There's really no difference. It's not man's interpretation upon God's word. As a matter of, as a matter of fact, um, you could say dogma in the Reformed tradition is systematic theology. You look at uh, some, of the, some of the great classic theological works by uh, some of the great Reformed thinkers. Um, for instance, Herman Bavink comes to mind because I'm, I'm reading his, his systematic dogmatics now. Um, and it's, a, it's systematic theology. But that term, dogmatics, amongst us means something different than it does in the Roman Catholic Church. And that's just important. You, we've, we've talked about this before, how terms must be defined when we talk about them with friends outside of our Reformed tradition, because it could very well mean something differently. You may be talking about dogma with a Roman Catholic friend, and your friend has a completely different idea, perhaps, than you do. So we're not presupposing particular redemption. We're not cherry-picking verses that fit into this view. Rather, it's vice versa. As I've been saying, the views are, are, are formed by what the Bible teaches. So in light of this, I'm going to look at, we're going to look at together some texts which are often used to attempt to refute uh, limited atonement, particular redemption. And there are three types of problem passages. We're going to look at each of the, these three types separately, and I'm going to show you examples of passages under each of these categories. And we're going to look at each of those passages in fairly good depth, some deeper than others, because there's more there to see that maybe is not as apparent as some of the others. So the first category is passages that seem to teach that God has a will to save everyone.
This is probably the category I would say that most of our Arminian friends would draw from. The first one we want to look at, turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. 2 Peter 3, 9. Okay, here, here Peter writes, in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Well, we take that verse, and that seems to teach, um, at least that the Lord's desire, the, the, the Father's desire, is a universal general redemption. But what is Peter writing about in this letter? What, what, is, his con, what is his concern? <clears throat> we need to get a, a fuller picture, I would say, because if we, if we isolate this verse, how do you take it? That the Lord's desiring a certain thing and we're saying, no, that's not what Scripture teaches. And the question to us is then, well, why doesn't God get what he desires? Why is he unable to get that? Well, perhaps that's not exactly what Peter is talking about. So we're going to read a little bit more here. We're going to expand our reading, which is important. You know, context is, is vital in this. So I'm going to read chapter 3 verses 1 through 13. And as I read it, as you listen and read along, think about what is Peter writing about? What is Peter's theme here? What is his subject? What is his concern? 2 Peter 3, 1 through 13. Peter says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God, and that by means of those the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Well, let me cut in here. Now 
verse 9, this is, our, this is the text, this is the verse that we're, we're looking at. See, see how it fits in. The Lord is not slow to fulfill, to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening, the coming of the day of, the, of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens with a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Is Peter, in this passage that we just looked at, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, is Peter writing about the salvation of all men and women? Or is he writing about something that concerns the elect? If Peter was talking about God wanting to save all people, then did you notice in verse 7, at the end of it, the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. How does that fit into, well, God wants to save everybody? Well, but, but Peter, you just said this. Well, well friend, you're, you're misunderstanding what I'm saying. You know, listen again, read again what I have said. What is the issue that you see here? What is the, what is the theme? What seems to concern Peter in this passage? Any thoughts? Faithfulness, okay. Linda G. I was going to say, he's trying to help the believers to know how to respond to the mockers, the <coughs> unbelievers. Scholars. Saying, where is God, you know, in his promises. And the, they're being mocked, why? There's a delay in something that people don't understand. Araceli, you're... Yeah, you're because it says, well, when is he coming? How long is he coming? So he's explaining a day is just like a thousand. And, and so it's like, we don't know the time. You just have to be ready. And that's what he's talking about. Yes. So all those things are true. The faithfulness, the perseverance in the face of mocking and scoffers, because it seems like the Lord's delaying and coming back. And this is being written to the church in the first century. And it's like, okay, there's a, an immediacy that we, are, that we are taught here in the first century about the Lord's return, but it seems to be taking longer than we thought it would take. And here we are in the 21st century, and still, we, we wait, but now we have the full word of God, the full revelation, and we can see, we know that it's merciful, and we're, we're, we'll touch on this a bit, um, God is merciful in his delay, right? And because he has decrees, he has, he has actual plans, things that have been determined before the formation of the world, before, before creation, in that, you know, how many people are going to be saved, how many of the elect are there, who 
are they? When will they live? That sort of thing. So God's delayed the second coming, even in the first century, not out of indifference to the believers and the suffering that they were experiencing at that time, but because there are others. There are others elect and chosen for salvation whom God is going to bring to repentance. So if Christ were to come now, right now, today, and he could, then that means that this generation is the last. And that there were those that if there were to be more born, you know, which we have a dichotomy there, if there are more to be gathered in, then the Lord's going to delay his return. Araceli. I was going to say that the way this talks about it, it's also devaluing God's sovereignty because it's making it seem like he's just sitting around waiting, waiting for everybody to come to repentance. And it's in a sense contradictory of saying that he foreknew from the beginning of time when he would do the things that he needs to do. So it, it, that's the first thing that kind of caught my eye about it because it's like it, it goes with everything that I read and see that it's like we're making God the way we think he should be because it's like, well, when is it going to be time? When, what is he waiting for? Who is he waiting for? And it's just he's very passive and, and just kind of sitting back and, and trying to determine something that he hasn't already created. Yeah. And you're referring to this idea here, <clears throat> and not what Peter's saying. Right, right. right, yes. Understand, yes. Good point. So, yes, we do have to, that's why when we started this series, we spent so much time dealing with the sovereignty of God. Because the sovereignty of God is key to understanding the doctrines of grace. And once you understand God's sovereignty, his ultimate overriding sovereignty, then when you, when you hear the doctrines of grace, you probably respond, well, of course. Well, of course, because God is sovereign. But if you miss that, and, and many of our Christian friends do miss that because of our cultural um, atmosphere, one could say, because of, of teaching in the church, which has not always been very good, um, especially since you know, the, about the um, 19th century on, there's been a growing move in, in much teaching in um, the Protestant branch of Christianity that focuses on, on man's sovereignty, and we've seen that. So, how do the great theologians interpret this verse? Well, let's look at what John Owen has to say. Now, once again, you know, um, Brother Owen can be difficult to follow because of the way he writes in the, in the manner of a very, very intelligent, um, probably genius level man in the 17th century. Um, it's not the type of writing we're used to. So listen closely and um, I'll, tr I'll try and, and, and go at a speed where it makes sense. 
So Owen writes, and I'm quoting from him, who are these of whom the apostle speaks, to whom he writes? Let me interject. That's the question that we started with, right? We've got to know that. Otherwise, it doesn't make much sense, does it? Owen continues. He says, it is those who had received great and precious promises. Flip over to chapter 1 of 2 Peter. That's verse 4. 2 Peter 1, 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Obviously, that is Christians. That is the elect, is it not? We can go back even further. This is the Owen didn't add this. This is, this is me. It, when you're, when you're dealing with, uh, especially with an epistle, look at the first verse. And the apostle will tell you who he's writing to. And here we read Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Okay, there, that's the author. To those, this is, he's addressing it. It's like he's sending a letter. To those who have, who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Ours, who's ours? Ours are the apostles the faithful band of inner disciples. Faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. God has done this. It's not their great teaching as apostles that has done this. He's giving all glory to, um, to God. So we see right there that nothing in this letter is going to be addressed to those who are not amongst the elect. He is addressing this to the elect. And we often miss this. And churches often miss this. We take the Bible and we just want to present it as an apologetic work to the unsaved. Like, just read this. And when they read it, if you miss these things, which even... Mature Christians at times could miss or forget. If the unelect reading the Bible for the first time misses this and then sees these things that seem to teach that God has a will to save everyone, we've put our friend in a predicament, an interpretive predicament that needs assistance. So we have to be, we have to be I would say, careful about doing that. Um, unguided. Now, now, the Holy Spirit can take a non-believer's reading of the Word of God and change their heart. That's how, that's how it works. God does that through the Gospel. But don't be surprised. I have experienced this as a younger man, that my friends with no grounding in Christianity, in the Bible, in the Gospel miss what I think they should be seeing. And I realized I have to, kind of like to use a touchy-feely phrase, I have to walk alongside them as, as they go through the Bible. I have to be there to help them and, and, and to guide them. The Holy Spirit's the best guide. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will speak to a person in such a way, we know this. All I'm, all I'm trying to say is that it's not all on us. God, God does this work. But here are some ways that we 
can be effective, we can be loving towards um, our friends. So, back to John Owen. He talked about it's to those who receive great and precious promises whom he, Simon Peter, calls beloved in chapter 3, verse 1. That's a special class, isn't it? Who are the beloved? Well, you, brother and sisters, you're the beloved. All those elect by God are beloved by God. And that's in contrast to those who oppose Peter, whom he calls, in verse 3 of chapter 3, scoffers of the last days. So those who the Lord considers in his disposal of those days, who are said to be elect, John Owen continues, and he gives an example, Matthew 24, 22, where the Lord Jesus says, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So the Lord Jesus is saying, and what John is saying, look at this, look who's in the crosshairs, if you will, of God. It's the elect. God has his eye on the elect, and this is what his focus is. That's who this is written to. God doesn't have his eye in this passage or in the Lord's passage recorded in Matthew on the reprobate sinners that, that do not come to Christ. So, wrapping up what, what Owen is saying, this, this is the, this is the gist, gist of his argument right here. This is, this is where he makes his point. Now truly, to argue that because God would have none of those, but all of them to come to repentance, none of those, that those that, that he's talking about, Owen is talking about, is the elect, um, th those who Owen points out to be Peter's target audience, um, but all of them to come to repentance. Therefore, he hath the same will and minds towards all and everyone in the world. Comes not much short of extreme madness. So what Owen is saying here, if you're, if you're, if you're following it along, if you understand what he's saying, and, and I've got to really concentrate when, when I'm reading Owen, and I get, I get tired very quickly reading Owen. It's work. Um, but what he's saying is that, hey, this is crazy to think that the elect and the non-elect are grouped together and that God has the same mind towards them. That's, but that's what people want this day, in this day and age, isn't it? Which they've always wanted. There, it's got to be equal. It's got to be even Stephen. There's got to be what the big buzzword today, equity. Not that everybody's given the same chance, but everybody has to wind up with the same stuff, right? Owen says that this applies, and this is a parenthetical clause that he, that he put in the middle of what I just read to you, but I didn't want to divert to the parenthetical clause clause because I wanted you to think about it. And I wanted us to talk about it. Owen says this applies even to those whom he, God, never makes known his will, nor ever calls to repentance. 
if they never once hear of his way of salvation. Do you see what Owen is saying there? He says it doesn't, this isn't a matter of fairness from our, our point of view, right? It doesn't, it doesn't matter if the person never heard the gospel. Why is this? What if they never once heard his way of salvation? How could that be? Imagine a person who's living in a part of the world that the gospel has not reached. Now, many would say that person never heard the gospel. It is completely unfair and monstrous that God would hold them accountable for the gospel. Where's the hole in that argument? In our hearts, we have a basis put into us. Yes. That's true. That's true. So the gospel's on our hearts, right? But here's my question. Let me let me hone it down a little bit. And I think our Araceli's already got the answer. I can I can. <laughs> There's the natural revelation. Okay. You might not hear the word, but in I mean, you start. We'll start whether you start thinking philosophy or or whatever way you start wondering about the bigger picture about the greater creation because that's just the way we're we're made. So, natural revelation points us to the fact that there is a God, a creator God, right? We should see that in natural revelation, and the fact that God has written the law on our hearts provides us with moral guidance, does it not? But by whom is salvation provided? By God in Jesus Christ. So this fellow that lives someplace where the gospels never reach has never heard of Jesus of Nazareth. He's never heard that he must believe upon Jesus Christ with his heart and repent of his sins and be saved. Never heard that. Doesn't know Jesus. Is that then unfair of God? There's, where's the, what's the hole in that argument? It has to do with the sovereignty of God. Caleb. Um, well, the whole reason we need a savior is because we're sinners which means we're guilty and worthy of punishment. And so uh, this is ignoring that. This is, this is uh, assuming that uh, the only sin that we're accountable for would be a rejection of the gospel. Okay. Doug. Um, to something to be unfair, it requires a victim. Okay. And if we're all sinners, who's the victim? That's a good point. Mike. Well, we're, you know, Caleb touched on it. We're presupposing that if the gospel were presented to this person, that they would make a, a change. Right. Um, I've just finished reading the account in Exodus of the plagues, and Pharaoh had the gospel preached to him in 10 plagues, and he rejected it. He finally lets them go, but his heart is shown for what it really is when he chases after them again. And that's all of us outside of Christ. So that man has what he wants already. He, he doesn't want the gospel. 
He has no desire for it because that's our heart outside of Christ for, for all of us. Run. I was thinking God is under no obligation to save to begin with because we are born in sin. And so if we grasp his holiness, is this what the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 is getting at? I mean, God is not obligated. And when we consider his holiness and that we are born in sin, that it it would be fantastic if he just saved one person. So God is, is not under obligation to save us. Um, we, uh, the, we know that all will receive justice. God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, as Pastor Mike explained and gave an example. And the book of Exodus tells us that, that God formed Pharaoh for that very purpose, to bring glory to God and to be hardened against God. And, and Pharaoh, like most sinners, contributes in his own hardening. But let me suggest this to you, something to think about. This, this, this hypothetical person that lives someplace that has never heard of Jesus Christ, who caused him to be born there in that time that he was born? Yes! That is part of the election process. That is part of God's election. And we are so steeped in the evolutionary idea, in the materialism of our culture, that we think of life as an accident, that this guy just happened to be born there at that place in time, right? And we, we even those of us who are amongst the Reformed uh, faithful can... Forget that. And that kind of like puts everything, I think, in a, a nice, easy, tidy package. Now, our friends who, who refute God's ultimate sovereignty and, and refute particular redemption may not be happy with that. It's not like, you know, I'm, I'm not presenting these things as, as mic drop arguments that you can just say, well, God and put him there at that time and place, boom, and you walk off the stage and you've won the argument. Because this is not about arguing, is it? It's not about winning a debate. It's about presenting God's word and God's desire for his people and the world in a way that's understandable and is, is really loving to all people. And it is not we who decide who is amongst the elect and not amongst the elect. We may deal with a hardened sinner day in and day out for our entire life. And then we go to glory and they continue on in this world. And they come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do not see it in this world. There is a very great potential of things like that happening. So when we present this, the gospel to anyone, when we discuss these things, not argue them, but discuss them, we do it with the idea that no matter who this person is, 
even if they do not accept Christ as their Savior, that is a potential brother or sister that we are speaking to. And only God knows if that person will be converted, will be transformed, will become a believer in Christ, and if that was to happen, when it will happen. Aracelli. Same um, conversation um, with another believer, and I use the the example of you know just because it's what came to mind is like say for example a governor you know has certain powers. Um, one of the powers that they might have is to pardon somebody that's on death row and that's going to be executed on that very day. So that's just one. So again. We as a people, the way are just as an, an example, we can't argue against that. That's the one power that they have. So again, God being the most sovereign of everything, who would we be to question God's decision? And unfortunately, they were like, no. <laughs> but I, to me, that's just the way it, it seemed. It was like, you know, if he's the one that gives everybody the power, in a sense, and if, if he's truly our God, then he has that power to do so. And who am I, or who are we, or as a society, or as a people, or as his creation? If you truly are a believer and believe that he created you, who are we to question that of him? Yes, good, good point. Analogies are wonderful, like Araceli, you know, using the... the, the, the um, the, the legally and constitutionally authorized power of a state governor to pardon or commute sentences. And whether we are in agreement when a governor does that or not, we know that the governor has the power to do that. And, um, and so thus God, you know, being even a higher magistrate than a governor, the power that he has, which that, you know, Aristotle's friend just immediately rejected that argument. But, but let me remind you that um, these arguments or these explanations that we present to people often is something that comes up in their thinking, in their conscience, that weighs on them, and they think about it. And as they read the Bible, if they're, if they're Christians and they're reading the Bible, they will see things that align with that. Brothers and sisters, <clears throat> you may have been blessed to immediately respond to the gospel upon its first presentation. It was not so for me. I rejected it and rejected it and rejected it and argued and argued and argued. <sighs> I know I, I've told you this before, and every time I, I tell you this, I start to get tears in my eyes and choke up. I was a jerk to well-intended believers who were sharing the gospel with me. I had so much pride in myself. <laughs> but each and every one of those blessed Christians who took the time to talk to me were part of the Lord's plan in transforming this heart of stone that I had into a heart of flesh. And I know that many of you have had the same experience. So let's, we should try not to get frustrated, is my point, when we're dealing with people who want to argue against us. Think of ourselves. Think of the mercy 
that the Lord has shown us in the change, the work he has wrought in us. A, a work that, you know, when we look back on it, it's like we could not have done this ourselves. This is not who I would, was, this is not who I set out to be when I was younger. It was totally different. And I know it's the same with you. Let me look at my notes here and see if I'm done with um, Brother John Owen. I got pages stuck together, so like that wasn't making sense. Okay. We have a few minutes. We have about six minutes. At least we'll, we'll start to touch on our second passage. We're going to look at three in this category. So this is the second one. Ezekiel. Eighteen thirty-two. So let's turn to Ezekiel in our Bibles. Ezekiel chapter 18. And we're going to look at verse 32 to begin with. And it's the very last verse in chapter 18. Ezekiel writes, and he, the Lord is speaking through Ezekiel here. So he's, he's writing down what the Lord has told him to, uh, to write. And this is the Lord speaking. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Well, we're going to, in Ezekiel, the Lord God says this more than once. He makes his... He makes this declaration several times. So what exactly is that verse? That verse by itself, that's, if that's the only thing we're working with, what exactly is that verse saying? <clears throat> it's saying only that God does not find joy in taking vengeance. We could really boil it down to that. That's what God is saying here. On the contrary, God finds joy in the salvation of his people. Just as the Lord said in Luke's gospel, Luke 15.10, just as the angels in heaven rejoice over the sinner who repents. There's great rejoicing over that. So let's expand our view here in Ezekiel 18. This whole chapter really could be looked at as God engaging what theologians call theodicy. Theodicy is the, it's like a courtroom defense. It's the defense of God against the charge of evil. God allows evil, God permits evil, God doesn't stop evil. How can that be? Theodicy attempts to answer that, give an explanation for it. So, let's go. I'm not going to, it's a long chapter. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going I'm to pull out 
some, um, some passages that I think will be helpful. So let's read the first four verses, Ezekiel 18, verses 1 through 4. Here Ezekiel writes, The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on, aid, on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who wins, excuse me, the soul who sins shall die. Okay, well let's jump down to verse 19. I'm going to read verse 19 and 20. Keep in mind what the Lord has just said to Ezekiel. Now the Lord says, Yet you say, Why should not the Son suffer for the iniquity of the Father? When the Son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The Son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the Father, nor the Father suffer for the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So God's giving an explanation why he doesn't want Ezekiel, at least, you know, he doesn't want him putting forth this proverb that, that the sons are going to suffer for the father. Now we're going to close with verses 25 through 32 as far as looking at that. Now again, God's saying, he says, yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. See, there's our, our, our charge and thus the theodicy in here. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is not your ways that are not, is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore I, er, therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. See what is being said here? The Lord God is saying to Israel, you're responsible for your sin. You cannot act in an unrighteous manner and expect to be considered righteous. But contextually, Ezekiel's writing at the time of the Babylonian exile. So he's writing to the nation of Israel as a whole, as a prophet of Yahweh. In chapter 18, here he explicitly cites the requirements of the law of Moses, the Mosaic Covenant. Israel is suffering due to their covenant transgressions. Now this is what James Montgomery Boyce has to say about this. And I, and I reference him because I want you to know it's just not 
you know, Pastor Ken saying this, that it's a very, very good uh, Reformed theologian who says this. Voice is saying, so what Ezekiel has in view here may well be physical, not spiritual rewards. That is, in physical death, which is the punishment for some of the covenant transgressions, right? We've talked about that, what, what the, 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 the atonement in the old covenant was for ritual purity violations, not for moral violations. Moral violations brought death or banishment. Boyce continues, it may even be the contrast between the death of the people versus their survival as a nation that the prophet has in mind. Consider this. This is, goes along with what, what Boyce is saying, that the survival of Israel as a people is necessary for the salvation that is to come, the incarnation of the Son of God. The Lord God is going to preserve them. He, he must preserve them for the plan of salvation to take place. The survival of Israel as an ancient nation is critical to the plan of salvation. Those are things that we have to keep in mind when we're reading and we're trying to understand these passages. We cannot engage in an anachronistic view where, we, where we're thinking of today and transposing it back into ancient times. We have to understand that context. And with that, I'm going to pray and dismiss you because I went over what I wanted to go over. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for your participation. And we'll pick this up, um, not next week, but the week after. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word, Father. Thank you for your salvation. Father, help us to understand it because this is, this is something really important to us, Lord. And I, as I say this in a lighthearted manner. Father, this is everything. Our salvation is everything, and we give thanks to you for it. We pray for the coming 11 o'clock hour. Bless um, Pastor Steve and Pastor Mike as they lead us at that time of worship, and may you be glorified in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.